Hello everyone, welcome back to this uh, recording on uh, another recording on uh, this season looking at stewardship and this week we're talking about covetousness. Um, I'm not feeling uh, quite perhaps at my best because I managed to lock myself out of the little den in my shed where the where my computer is for a recording and in the process of trying to break back into it I managed to cut myself and ended up having to scramble up sort of on top of a wall with a ladder and we're now starting the recording about 40 minutes later than we normally do. So uh, that's been my start to this discussion. I hope it gets better from here. My name's Cameron. Uh, g'day, Ken here. And I haven't had anything like the uh, disasters that Cam's <laughs> had. So uh, I'm just sitting here comfortably. Uh, and I assume we'll be finished in a couple of minutes. Yeah, uh, because yeah. we usually take just slightly longer than 40 minutes for our recordings. Yeah, and I'm Lachlan. Um Look, at the risk of, of having you covet my experience of the evening, Cam, I have, sure I have had the opposite I'm experience. I'm on a high and I am elated after harvesting the first watermelon of the season from my garden. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm jealous, look. I, uh, I'm resisting the urge to jump on a flight and come and take your watermelon. Um, uh, yeah, the lessons on covetousness, and there's uh, so many stories in this week's lesson that are really rich pickings for interesting discussions. So, one of them is the uh, sin of Achan, and one of them is Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, Joshua and chapter seven, perhaps we is, might is where read, the, the sort of story um, starts because there's some this is where Israel is from the story um, of the sin the of Israelite Achan, nation Joshua moving into five, the land of Canaan, and there's some military campaigns. And, of course, the Jericho um, situation is a clear victory for the Israelites. Uh, but by the time we pick it up in Joshua 7, there's um, the Israelites actually lose a military scuffle at this point. Um, and as the chapter progresses, it becomes apparent that the reason why is because of the sin of this man, Achan. It's interesting because Joshua goes to God, tears his clothes, falls on his face uh, before the ark and says, well, what, what happened here? Why did this happen? And God says to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Um, uh, I mean, I, you know, he's being respectful and all. And God says to him, stop this groveling. Um, mm. uh, up on your feet. Uh, it's very clear. It's abundantly clear. Somebody's done the wrong thing. I said not to take these things and... Israel has taken them. The things, these are the spoil from Jericho, is what they're talking about. That, now, what's interesting is that, that in, subsequent, in subsequent military conquests, God says you are allowed to keep the spoil. Uh, but on this particular occasion, he said that you're not allowed to keep any of the, the wealth of the city. You know, and, and that, that raises such an interesting thing. I'm um, uh, currently reading a book by Peter Enns uh, called The... Uh, oh, I've forgotten that. Anyway, it's about the Bible, and it talks about how it's a an antique, ambiguous, diverse book. Um, and in fact, one of the examples of the ambiguity is that um, uh, he uses the one that we spoke about in Proverbs, you know, where uh, don't uh, <laughs> uh, don't correct a fool, um, otherwise you'll be the fool, uh, and uh, correct the fool, otherwise the fool won't know they're a fool. Um, uh, so you've got these two 
instructions in adjoining verses that are completely contradictory. Um, and, and I think this is a, that's another interesting example, Cam. If you're going to use the Bible as a rule book, how could you possibly choose? Uh, if you're going to say, well, whenever you uh, are taking over a company or whatever you're doing, whenever you're involved in some sort of conquest, then mm. you've got to leave the things because that's what God said to do in, re in relation to Jericho. But then in other cases, well, you've got to take them. So how do you know which is which? Well, one of the, the, the reason, the issue that you've identified, Ken, is that the Bible is story, uh, not theology in the abstract. Mm. Mm. It's the story of how God dealt with these people. I'm going to read some of the story. Um, Achan's found out by this process of drawing lots. And Achan replied, it's true, I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia... 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messages and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle and donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor, Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring you uh, will bring trouble on you today. And then they stoned him, mm -hmm. which is a very direct action on God's part, I feel. Um, that prophecy didn't take too, too long to be fulfilled, did it? Because Joshua says, the Lord will bring trouble on you. And then they all pick up rocks and stone him. Well, well that was because that's what they were instructed mm. to do by God um, uh, back in verse 11 where he says, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Yeah, and then after all this, the Lord turned from his fierce anger, and that's how that place got its name. Now, there's um, your comment, Ken, on this being an antique book. I mean, obviously we need to talk about covetousness, but the elephant in the room is, why did all the children have to die and the animals, and the, why did a good tent have to be spoiled? Tents, and you can go, but you can go back, you can take the uh, vicarious... Um, punishment back because uh, it's not just why did Achan and all his yeah. animals have to die but why did the entire Israelite nation uh, have to suffer um, not uh, as a result of Achan's sin uh, because they, they, they lost the battle in Ai um, and presumably they lost the battle in Ai because uh, 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 well, at, well at least 36 of them were mm -hmm. killed which isn't nine. a lot out of 3,000 no, it's not that many. It's a one percenter. But uh, it is for those who lose their lives mm. and their families. Well, they, they found, this is by the way, but apparently archaeologists have found um, chipped stones that have been chipped into a perfect sphere for use in slings. And some of the stones are pushing, you know, 10 centimetres diameter. They're shot put type things. Um, so a siege on a city probably didn't involve much hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Um uh, that's by the way. One of the things that I think is interesting is um, who was un who was unfaithful in verse one of chapter seven. It, the Israelites. So it's this collective guilt thing again. It that that you know we talked about. I think several several seasons back. But one person has done something wrong. The whole of Israel is then considered to be unfaithful, which seems like a very difficult standard to meet because you'd have one or two people doing something wrong all the time. Yeah, but the 
the point here is not just, it is true that in this story, God regards the people of Israel as unfaithful, but it is equally true that the people regard themselves as unfaithful. They don't turn around and say to God, God, it was only one bloke. That is true. Um, they say, oh, God was right. We have been unfaithful. So this, this is a view, this is not a view God's imposing on them. This is a view that's very systemic within the culture. And it's systemic within many, many, many cultures. Um, and it's not just to do with moral issues like doing right and wrong. It's to do with issues of honour. If one person is disgraced in the community, the whole community is disgraced. If one person in the, in the clan or the family group is honoured, then the whole community is, is honoured. Um, we ascribe to this in some very diluted forms. I've just spent a day relief teaching at a school um, that is a fairly high fee-paying school. And I've worked at a couple of different schools. And it is a feature of high fee-paying schools that the parents want their kids to, to do well academically because it makes them look good or feel yeah. good or yeah. assuage their their sense of power. so there's that so even that is a even that is a some sort of collectivism it, it it's even more that because we're not just talking about collectivism we're also talking about a culture in which the man owns everything because what does it actually say what does god actually tell um joshua to do in in 15 Verse 15, he says, Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So they're talking about one person, him. And, and but... that's consistent with what's said in verse 24, where it's, you know, everything, his sons, daughters, cattle, donkeys, sheep, etc. Exactly. And all that all he had. All that belongs to him. So his wife <clears throat> yeah. and his children belong to him. That's why they're stoned. Yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because weren't they meant to be destroyed by fire? Well, they were. Well, they afterwards. were stoned. No, they after the, after they were stoned, they were burned. Yes. Um, after they had stoned, the rest they burned. Oh yes. Yeah, yes. Oh, right. oh goodness me. It's a, it's a I've pretty pretty detail. it's a pretty thorough sort of execution. Look, the problem yeah. in the abstract hasn't been solved just because we think it's a problem. So, um, well, the no, part of this why? problem that the part of this problem that challenges me is the part that no one in the story seems to see that there's a moral issue with this, including God. So that, that challenges me. Uh, but the overriding moral question of why do children suffer for the sins of their parents hasn't changed. Mm. Mm. Um, Indeed, I mean, it, it existed in Jesus' day. And you can understand why a story like this would lead to the development of a doctrine that you die because you're be or, or that bad things come upon you because you're being punished for your sins because this is exactly uh, th this is exactly that situation well, so that then begs the question though because Jesus came out well, your sins or the sins of your yeah, parents well, Jesus came out very strongly against the idea of children being responsible no. for the sins of their parents or, or or suffering because of the sins of their parents. but but Actually, maybe we're looking at the story the wrong way. This isn't going to solve your problem at all. Maybe we're looking at the problem the wrong way. Maybe this is not. Maybe this is not a story about blatant and indiscriminate punishment. Surely it is a story about very focused and discriminate punishment, because all Israel. The chapter starts with Israel was unfaithful, right? But and God says, on, right, "Only Cam. punish the family concerned." You're very right that that doesn't solve anything. Because God doesn't actually say that. He says only punish the man concerned. 
and all that belongs to him. Doesn't talk about the family at all. And if if God can be that specific, right, to save yeah. all of Israel, punish only one family, why not save all of Israel, yeah. punish only one man? Because only one man has actually done something wrong. Yeah, but, okay, well, if, that's if true. If you see what I mean, if um, you can be that specific and discriminate, why not be a little yeah. bit more specific and discriminate? Because God knows the number of hairs on your head. It also shows that he works within the social context. Yeah, that's what I think. Um, so, so I mean, well, that, that's that's true in our that's true in our culture where we place all. great emphasis on individual responsibility. But where where the society is very different and doesn't doesn't really recognise d- distinguish between individuals, so what, but deals with things what on you're a family saying basis. Is Ken is the worse our society is, the worse God can treat us. Yeah, well, I think that's true. <laughs> I think that is true in the sense that. God could have wiped the whole thing out and started again. I know like, what you're about to say, Locke. We haven't talked about covetousness. Um, I can see you. Waving. We need to get back to covetousness. Um, but you know, if if you look at the the incarnation of Christ, it's a very hands-off approach to solving the problem. If he has the whole powers that he must have at his disposal, he could have just wiped it and started clean slate. You could think of so many ways of God interfering that that would have been. Uh, less respectful of the awful state of affairs down here, um, but God does seem to choose. All right, I've to got... operate within the context yeah. <laughs> of what's happening here on Earth instead of just look. Sort of we do need to get back to covetousness, and that, and that is the really only way the issue in which is, I can is make any sense. What of this was chapter. the sin, and why was it so bad? But Cameron just on a, on a detour, yeah. while you've been discussing this, I have just discovered no an alternative reading of this story. I want to pick a few key verses. So the where where you finish the story after they piled a heap of stones and over the detail. remains, it finishes the chapter by saying, "So the Lord was no longer angry." Okay, that's we, we are interpreting from that story that what has happened has been pleasing to God. But how would the author know that the Lord was no longer angry? Well, the the author knows because in chapter eight it goes straight on to talk about that their success in in a repeat of this military campaign, but. I think the author is wrong in assigning this to be God's pleasure. Let's look at a few details. At the start of chapter 7, God does not instruct Joshua to send any people. In verse 2, Joshua just sends some people. The spies, he sends them as spies. They come back and they say, this is going to be pretty easy. There's no need for all of us to go up. And so, in verse 4, approximately 3,000 warriors were sent, but they're soundly defeated. Then there's the soul searching. How can we be defeated? We're God's army. All of this stuff happens with Achan. And then what happens the next time they try? In verse chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Don't be afraid. Take all your fighting men and attack Ai. So in verse 3, Joshua and all the fighting men sent out to attack. How many? Joshua shows 30,000 of his best warriors. No wonder they had better success second time round. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm wondering whether this is actually a story of a whole lot of poor decisions militarily and an incorrect attribution uh. of God's feelings in the whole scenario. God is clearly upset with Achan, and we now need to turn to find out why that is. But the assessment that God has been pleased at the end of this gory execution might not be as clear-cut as it seemed in the mind of the author. That's my contention.
if you ascribe to the view of present truth and apply it retrospectively, mm. so present truth says there is still truth yet to be learned, retrospectively, that means at it, when you read Bible stories, there is lots of truth that they had not yet found. Um, and so you, you have to, if you're an Adventist who believes God's revelation is ever ongoing, you have to believe that some of the people recorded mm. in the Bible and the Old Testament knew less about God. And this is, this is what talks about in Hebrews when they're talking about the people who looked for the Messiah but weren't quite sure what it was going to be. And So maybe I think, I think maybe that's less of an uncomfortable hmm. point of view than it f- might feel at, at first sight. Or, or maybe sight. it's not that they knew less about God but that they knew different things about God. Yeah. Um, so, so it's not a it's not necessarily a quantitative difference, but it might be a qualitative difference. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's depending on their difference. cultural context. Yeah, just want to point okay. out that well, we've we stopped talking about covetness again very no. quickly. <laughs> okay, well, the other, go back to... we've already stopped talking about it again. So I'm going to take us on another little detail. Do it. Oh. Why is it ordinarily as a principle of sentencing, you're entitled to a substantial reduction? something in the order of 15 to 25% on your penalty. If you confess. If you plead guilty. Um, and if, that, if there are genuine demonstrations of the uh, plea of guilty, if there's a recognition of remorse that come with the plea of guilty, if there's a genuine recognition of wrongdoing, and we often refer to there's real insight uh, into the wrongdoing, uh, then uh, the penalty is mitigated. Um, uh, it seems to me, uh, and cooperation with the investigating authorities is one of the factors that comes into assessing the genuineness of that remorse. Um, an immediate confession um, is uh, another factor. Here we have all of those things, except that I suppose Aiken does wait for a while to see whether or not it's actually going to come around to him. Uh, but once he's caught, he puts his hand up and says, yep, look, I was I was covetous and I did the wrong thing. Uh, it didn't do him or his family any good. I'm going to drag us kicking and stream, screaming back to covetousness. I'm going to move us forward to a story later in Israel's history at a time where it's going to touch on all of these themes. Uh, it's going to touch on all the themes of the covetousness and the wrongdoing and what modes of justice are appropriate and the way God wants to intervene and even some redemptive qualities. So let us please turn to... Uh, 1 Kings chapter 21. <laughs> uh, I'm kicking and screaming, Cam. Mm. Um, good. Good, uh, good. As good, you good. drag us, but 1 Kings chapter 21. Yeah. This is covetousness proper because the covetousness of, of, of Achan was he took something that belonged to the Lord. And the Ananias and Sapphira example in Acts falls into that category too, which is a form of covetousness that deserves discussion. But the form identified or most talked about in the Ten Commandments is very clearly God doesn't want us to covet things that belong to each other here on earth. And that's the examples given in the Ten Commandments tie it very strongly. So it's not just, in other words, God's, God's saying, it's not good enough just to look after my interests. Don't, don't think you're going to be, keep me happy just by looking after my interests. Um, yes, obviously, don't steal the things that belong to me. But I care about whether you steal the things that belong to each other. And it's not just steal, it's whether you even want them enough well, to steal. It, it's, uh, this is the, de- look, this is the Macquarie Dictionary to bring us even forward further. The, uh, 
to desire the new living translation in so it's an inordinate story, Aiken's yeah. confession um, or without due regard phrasing, to the rights I of wanted others. them so yeah. much that to I desire wrongfully yeah 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 so he knew it was wrong um, to take that yeah yeah so it's an it's a it's I mean, it is not wrong to want things. It is not wrong to want good things. Um, uh, it is not wrong to desire those things. The wrongness comes in desiring them too much, and the too much is measured by the degree to which you are prepared to trample on the rights of others to yeah. obtain what you want. And the, the C.S. Lewis reference this week is the magician's nephew. Everyone needs to go and read The Magician's Nephew about the, the apple tree and the they, secret in a they garden. They need to go and read it, Cam, because it's the best book in the... Well, it's the first book in the Chronicle. Yeah. I'm, I'm an absolute heretic. I have never read The Chronicles of Narnia. Cam. I have tried and I have started the genre... It's not. I just right. can't. We're all I sinners, just can't Ken. Do it. We're all sinners. It's clear. It's. I understand. It's clearly, <laughs> a, you know, a defect in my makeup as a human being. But uh, there you are. I confess it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're all sinners. Okay. On that note, let's turn to First Kings twenty-one because this is a this is an example very much about coveting things, and I think I think the as I said before, the danger of coveting things that belong to God. Can. I think we are less inclined... Just hang on. I think we are less inclined to covet things that belong to God than we are to things that belong to people around us. Well, yeah, I'm not that, so that sure. may or I, I, may not but... be true, depending on what you say, is, is things that belong to God. But what I wanted to ask you, Cam, is I know you brought us to this story to get us away from the last story, but have you read... All of chapter 22 through to the end? Uh, I haven't read it in the last half hour. Um, so, uh, but what I wanted to, the the point I wanted to get to is the last verse of this chapter as an interesting sort of um, alternate perspective on on God's indiscriminate dealings with people in the sin of Achan. So let's, let's summarize this one. This is Naboth's vineyard, Ahab's the king, and he wants... Uh, this vineyard because he like he's got good soil and he says I'd like it for a vegetable garden. So the king of Israel wants a veggie patch, and um, I'll pay you what it's worth. And Naboth replied, um, "No, it's been in my family forever, and I'm not going to sell it to you." And Ahab went home sulking, and his wife comes along and says, "What's wrong? Oh, what's wrong? Oh, I'm sulking. I've had a few that Naboth guy won't sell me his vineyard." And Jezebel says, "Don't worry, I'll deal with it." So um, she said, "You're the king." You don't have to sulk about stuff like that. I'll deal with it. And she writes letters in Ahab's name, places his seal on them, and sends them to Naboth's uh, uh, city. And a, a day of fasting is proclaimed, and Naboth is put in a prominent place. Um, but at, at this festival, two scoundrels have been paid to bring false accusations against him, and he's to be taken out of the city and stoned to death. And this is what happens. So this is another story about stoning. So... Um, they Interesting have the that feast. It had to be the two. You'd have to pay the two scoundrels because you needed the two witnesses. Mm. You needed the two witnesses. They sit opposite him and brought the charges against Naboth before the people, saying Naboth has cursed both God and the king. And so they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. And then they sent word to Jezebel: Naboth has been stoned to death. In verse fifteen, 
As soon as she hears this, she said to Ahab, I get up and take possession of the vineyard. So when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard. Um, incidentally, that's a classic case of Old Testament writing where the um, with a limited vocabulary, you place emphasis on something by repeating it. So, so if we wanted to say I was a bit upset, um, no, I wasn't just a bit upset, I was cross. Or I wasn't cross, I was angry. I wasn't angry, I was furious. We have all these words that give you degrees of Ooh. emphasis. But in the Old Testament writing, you provide emphasis by repetition, which is parodied in um, one of the Monty Python skits. Um, but uh, look at this paragraph here. As soon as Jaboth, uh, Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the uh, Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. So we're told four times that Naboth's been killed. So you're saying um, he was very dead. He was he was very dead. Mm, he um, was an ex um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then Elijah, Elijah's sent to the king and uh, God says to him, meet him at the vineyard and say, have you have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Which is, again, fascinating because Ahab hasn't. He's, he's unwisely left it in the hands of his wicked wife who's, who's done it for him. But he is responsible because it's his, it's his name that the orders were given him. Uh, this is what the Lord says. In the place where the dogs li- licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. And um, Elijah delivers the message with various embellishments um, that add to what God originally told him. Um, and then uh, he says that the dogs will devour Jezebel, which, of course, ends up happening, and the dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. And there's a little parenthesis that explains how bad Ahab was and that there was never anyone as bad as he was. Then verse 27, When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? This is the king with whom there is no comparison to be made with anyone else for being evil. Yes. Have you noticed that he's humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I'll bring it on his house in the days of his son. It sounds like Josiah, doesn't it? it, it so firstly, that sounds a little bit like the concept you were describing, Ken. He expressed contrition and he got a reduced sentence. Yeah, for, for substantially, substantially reduced sentence. So <laughs> yeah. here's the question I want to put. Commuted the life yeah, sentence. Here's the question I want to put to or the everyone. death sentence. Is um, Achan or, or Ahab, who was worse? Because Achan <laughs> got a much worse punishment and his kids definitely yeah. did. I mean, if you read 22 and the, the following one, Ahab's kids were all horrible people as well. Um, and yeah. so you could argue that what happened to them in their time. Yeah, no, but was my answer is unambiguous the of their own in the context of these stories. They deserve far more yeah. evil. Where Aiken's kids never got a chance to and grow The reason up that I say this is because I see the story emphasizing Ahab's. Firstly, Ahab is not the directly yes. responsible person, he's accepting his, an offer of help. Hmm. No, but the second, no. No, no, hang on. No, hang that's on. fair. No, he is so 100% he didn't know. responsible. 
He doesn't get involved and, with Blake. And the second reason that's much more clear is that Ahab actually does repent. I have been he didn't sitting know. on an observation and waiting know. for the she right does the time whole to put thing it out here. I actually, I actually read the story of Aiken slightly differently from the way Ken did a few moments earlier. And I do this very cautiously because no, right, I know that this is yes, Ken's is professional judgment here and, and I'm going against it, so I do it very cautiously. Um, I don't think Aiken recognized that what he had done was wrong. When I read the story of Aiken, he identifies what he did, but I read it the same as I just listened to an interesting historical crime podcast about a mother who murdered three of her children and immediately admitted it to the police was basically on this is you know 150 years ago was on site when they came to to the scene and she said yeah I I killed them total admission of doing the act and total inability to access that what had happened was wrong and evil and that's exactly how i read aiken oh. yeah now i oh. just just well you, you may read it that way the author of the story of ahab in verses 25 and 26 says that he's the worst no but look at what there it doesn't never anyone as bad as him and I do think you are reading into the Look, story of Aiken because it doesn't actually say anything. Yeah, about we have his to. Or his no, and, we, and, and and again, just coming back to no, it, no, his kids were stoned to death. They didn't do anything yeah. wrong. Okay, let's put the kids aside. We, I, but no, let's put the kids to one side. No, look, if we're going to read the book of Joshua at all, God has already instructed the How Israelites to annihilate so entire cities. We cannot, we cannot concentrate our thoughts on the topic of this episode, which is coveting, if we're going to be sidetracked by worrying well, and yeah. having qualms about children being murdered. We cannot. What we must do... <laughs> I, I'm I'm calling Yeah. We have to we have to for this conversation, rule, I'm not saying I we must always, but we have to because it's, my it's contention the reason I that I am making this point about um interpreting Aiken's um apparent confession, I don't think it's a confession, I think it's an admission, but it's not a guilty plea. And the reason I'm saying that is because I actually think as we've been discussing, this is a new thought that's emerged to me, the difference between coveting and well, simply mm, mm. much more healthy forms of, of wanting, you know, I want my children to have a, a, a comfortable bed to sleep in. Um, I, I desire all sorts of things that are not necessarily evil desires. Yeah. They become coveting when, they, when those desires stop me being human. They dehumanize me. What I see in the story of Aiken is he has been completely dehumanized. He says, I, want, I saw them. I wanted them so much that I took them. They're hidden in the ground. He describes what he did and what he felt. He does not confess. He does not express any contrition. He doesn't... He doesn't re if he realized that his actions were what had caused God's displeasure with the Israelites as a whole, he had plenty of opportunity to confess. This is the next day. Oh. Oh. He, he has, um, my contention is that he has not, even to the end, he has not recognized and, and he that didn't what do he has it done until and that's precisely right at the end what coveting is. actually found out.
yes. Okay, but Ahab doesn't display any contrition or take any actions of repentance until after it's been pointed out to him that he's coveted and that his dogs are going to lick up his blood. But so he, how is that he is at least some. Well, this is this is, I think, one of the points that the story is making. I think that that little parenthesis in verse 25, which says, by the way, before we go on with this story, let us remind you that Ahab was the worst bloke that's ever been around. That parenthesis there is there deliberately as a pre-runner to God's decision to postpone the judgment. So this is this is one of these pictures where we are seeing um, a perhaps slightly truer insight into the way God works, where he is unreasonably gracious and 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 I think that picture comes into focus more and more as you move through the Bible. And the author here is really driving the point home. He could have just gone on and said, God decided to wait, you know, and commute the life sentence, as it were. Um, uh, but he doesn't. Before he, before he gets that bit, he just has to remind us that Ahab was really bad. And then he says, this really bad person, he didn't just say he was sorry. He put on clothes and sackcloth and fast. That's a public act. Everyone in the court would have seen him do it. There's some there's some sense in which he's not just apologising in private. There's some there's some sense in which he is acknowledging that wrong has happened. Um, it it is obviously pretty shallow because there's not a, a a great turnaround in Ahab's life. It is it is obviously slightly insincere. Um, he doesn't suddenly miraculously turn a new leaf and become awesome. But but God is looking for reasons to well quite so. Why was God not looking for reasons to spare Aiken's family? We Sorry, must presume I, I, I can't that he get was. Over that point. And look, I really think your reading into the, your take on that story requires a lot of adding of information that just isn't in the text, right? No, but the and point is that I would point out much. that you're overlooking some things which are in the text because I've just gone back and I've read and verse twenty. Aiken replies, "No, it's, it is but true. it's defiant. He doesn't care that he's sinned the against God." The first thing he That's, says is an admission of guilt and a <laughs> statement acknowledging that it was sin. You can't possibly know that from the text. He acknowledges that he sinned against the Lord, but he does nothing to well, express any remorse about it. The text does not say that he does anything. That is not that the is, same that as is doing the point. nothing. And he wasn't even given a chance to do nothing. Nobody came and stoned Ahab immediately. They stoned no, him but immediately. No one, no if one he had stoned. Been given a chance, sorry, Cap, Luke. Let me finish. If no, I'm going to. I'm going to override. No one stoned Aiken immediately either. There's hours and hours and hours of investigation. There's a, there's days have passed. A campaign's failed. There's heaps of time. Right. Okay. Point taken. If he had dressed himself in sackcloth and wailed and moaned as was the culture of expressing regret, as if he had done exactly what Ahab done, would the sentence have been commuted in any way, do you think? Because I, w I, w I will make that point. If we can read into this story stuff that isn't there, I'm going to read in that he did express regret and contrition in that period of time between when he was found and when he was stoned to death. No. Lachlan's point, I think, is the fact it's not given is telling the fact it's not given is is telling of of the information that the author knew and what the author chose to record it doesn't mean that what he didn't tell wasn't there or didn't happen you authors old testament that. old testament authors are all knowing as we've seen they even know what god's thinking at least in the in the way the narrative is written they are all knowing the fact 
that Aiken is not recorded to have done something throughout the whole investigation process when they're casting lots and narrowing it down prior to But if to you read the, the story, Luke, Ahab um, didn't even is, I know think, that Naboth sufficiently had been all he knew was that, that Naboth had died. It's only when he is confronted by Elijah, no. who accuses him of murdering, immediately. But when Ahab heard this message, he tore his clothes. Sure. I'm not trying to defend Ahab. The body of texts we have in the Old Testament make a pretty clear picture that Ahab is an evil man. But in this story, I don't think Ahab is even comparable to Achan. Well, that may be, but I, I just don't think you can read that much information into the story of Aiken that isn't there. You, there is because no because he doesn't icon. think and feel anything. The, as you what say, I'm, Cam, the author is omniscient. They know everything. They don't. No, but I'm not. I'm not assuming. Luke, what, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to see if there's any insight about covetousness. No, that, you how can't can we? That. That's how can totally I unfair. try and avoid coveting? In a life where there are many things that I desire. When does my desire, which is natural, turn into coveting, which is sinful? That's what I'm trying to identify. Yeah, I'm doing an interpretive process here on the story of Aiken. But in that interpretive process, I'm attempting to pinpoint an element that is new to me in the discussion we're having right now. That is a possible distinction between a desire that is healthy and one that's become unhealthy. And the one that has become unhealthy is the one that has caused me to lose my ability of judgment about, about what matters. It's, it's, it's a coveting is the sort of mind space that causes me to become, this is my hypothesis I'm suggesting, causes me to become the sort of person who can say, oh yeah, I've sinned against the Lord and just not even care that I have. I think the tendency that the, oh, the, that's a good way the commandment on covetousness is there to highlight is that when we want something enough, we instinctively feel that we deserve to have it. I mean, yes. And, in and that that's sense, not the, true. These are, these are both stories of covetousness. Bad things happen because people tried to take things that they wanted on the basis only that they wanted them. And, and no other justification or reason. Um, Lachlan, I think you're, you're, the meaning that you're attempting to find in these two stories is, that, is internally consistent. It does make sense. I just don't like the assumptions you're making. And, and maybe that's because the more I think about it, the more I think that if we want to talk about the morality of covetousness or, or, or look at um, you know, concrete instruction for how we should understand it and how we should act to avoid it, we should really be looking at the New Testament. Because the Old Testament doesn't have great lessons on this topic. I think it's got heaps. I think it's got lots of I think it's got lots of examples. I absolutely agree with you that Christ is a better teacher of the ways of God than either Achan or Ahab. You know, Christ's teachings are far superior. But I fear... No, but I fear yeah, yeah, that sometimes I, that I might, if we're I might accidentally be becoming an Aiken or an Ahab, I, I even as I try to keep my eyes focused for. on Christ. I guess that's the concern.
one of the important things about the Old Testament is, and it, it is there in a less stark form in the New Testament when Paul warns the churches about this or warns the churches about that or warns the churches about this, um, there is an implication in a lot of Paul's lessons that the New Testament church isn't going well all the time. Um, I think that one of the important parts about the Old Testament is just the observation that it isn't always easy to consistently follow God or Maybe that's not the right way of saying. Uh, statistically speaking, humans have a bad track record at following God consistently. Um, and that observation on its own makes the story of, of Achan worthwhile, worth recording. Um, uh, I think that the issue around the morality, it, the problem is if we could solve the morality of the judgment expressed in the story of Achan and explain away that particular example, it wouldn't explain away the problem. That there, there does just seem to be a moral paradigm at work in the early Old Testament, which is, which is very much at odds uh, with w- what we understand God wants. So, I mean, that problem's just there. Um, uh, there, is, there is, I think, value in the implied silence argument. I know I've been looking and trying to find an example, but I can't find one offhand. I'll have to find one for ne- next week's podcast. Apparently in the bar, uh, not apparently, I found instances in the Bible, and we talked about it when the subject I did at Avondale. Um, there, there are places in the Bible where uh, David said, blah, 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 blah. And then the next sentence starts with, David said, blah, 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 blah. And it's part; it's a continuation of the same speech. And But the narrative is broken to, to, to add in the phrase, and David then said, blah, 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 blah. And the fact that that is put in there implies in the stories... Um, in which this we studied, there seems to be an implication that the people he was talking to had nothing to say, um, almost like a pregnant pause. And and given that the Old Testament is so interested in moral matters, and given that Old Testament narratives, at least from the point of view of the narrative, the narrative writer is all knowing, and they always know what people are thinking and feeling. Everyone, including God, um, one must suppose there's some element. I was, I was going to say guesswork. Um, but maybe some extrapolation and some some inspiration may be involved, but maybe there's some very, what's the opposite of inspiration? Um, uninspired expressions as well. I don't know. But I, I do feel that um, there are enough people in the Old Testament who who say the words, what I'm doing is wrong, including like the Pharaoh, um, that, that if Achan doesn't say, oh, no, maybe he doesn't, maybe the Pharaoh only says... I've sinned against the Lord, which is what Achan says. Mm, he does. Yeah, but maybe the same charge could be. But the Pharaoh says that when he actually him. does repent, he changes his mind later. Yeah, but maybe it's a good comparison. Maybe, maybe when you look at what that phrase means, when you look at the phrase "I've sinned against the Lord," is is that a phrase that embodies genuine repentance? Given that it comes from the mouth of the Pharaoh, who is a great symbol of a very shallow and um, but, well, I think that that is actually something which the story of Ahab does illustrate well, that even temporary, shallow repentance is repentance. It is recognized by God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think um, uh, this has been a fascinating discussion. Um, it has been one of the most combative I'm already feeling sorry uh, for episode. whoever has to edit it. <laughs> it's one of the most combative episodes that I think we've uh, uh, re- we've recorded. Um I, I don't think so, Ken. Particularly enjoyable <laughs> on that account. I take objection to both of your statements. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but I do think that 
uh, well, I particularly appreciated the idea that even the most evil king was a recipient of mercy when he repented. Um, And I think that's uh, uh, something that gives hope for me and perhaps all of us. Yeah. And just don't be the child of a sociopath. Don't be the child (laughs) of a sociopath. But the danger of the sociopath is not that he goes about doing things that he knows is wrong. It's that he does not think the things that he's doing are wrong. And um, that's the frightening dimension to a moral life is that it's possible. And I think that's the dimension in covetousness that's really dangerous. And I think there are few of it. I mean, how many people do you know who say, I want to live a bad life? Most people would say, I want to live a good life. The difficulty is uh, determining what that is. Yeah. And having enough, um, being challenged often enough to really soul search and to realise that maybe we are. There's a great comedy sketch with Mitchell and Webb where it's two Nazi generals having a sort of private discussion while they're out on the Russian front and they come gradually coming to the realisation, maybe what if we're the bad guys? Um, and um, you know, it's done in a comedic sort of fashion, but it's sort of poking fun at this idea that exactly like you said, Ken, everyone, everyone believes they're on the side of the goodies. Um, so that's, that's a challenge for us. I'm lying the clock. If we're going to stop in less than an hour, we need to stop very soon. Now. So um, thank you to our listener. Uh, hopefully we've stirred you up to you know some higher get it, sense to get in an argument today injustice yeah yeah exactly and i like so, the fact that you referred, referred to our listener singular um because yes. after this episode perhaps that's all that we'll have left maybe <laughs> i don't know uh, but they they should send us their thoughts if they uh have dare. them to the if email address dare. if you dare <laughs> uh, sabbath school from home at gmail.com and um Please join us again next week. Uh, some of these ideas, I think that in terms of interesting topics, this quarter is getting better and better. In terms of hitting home, covetousness hits closer home to me than, than does um, the issue of tithing. 